three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put um, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode eight. I'm your host, the one, but not the only. There's lots of people with my name. Ricky Rosen, and this is a podcast about basically everything, uh, ranging from psychology and philosophy to nutrition to dating and back again. Guys, we have some really thought-provoking items on the agenda today. I know I always say that, but I, I'm really excited about the material we'll be covering in this episode. We're going to start off talking about alcohol. You know it, you love it, you hate it. We are putting obscene amounts of toxic poison into our bodies in spite of the debilitating short and long-term effects it does to our mind and to our bodies. Why, 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 why do we do this? We'll be diving into psychology again, examining our superficial nature. Would the world be a better place if we were all just uniform gray blobs? And why you should stop looking in the mirror so damn much? And finally, nutrition. Why every single food in your kitchen cabinet contains corn in some way, and how the government's subsidizing of agribusiness is the greatest problem in society that almost no one knows about. All that and a hell of a lot more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. As always, friends, keep sending in those emails, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. Still trying to grow that following on um, on Instagram and, you know, uh, definitely try, you know, do your best if, if, if you're listening and, you know, if, if a question pops in your mind, if you have an opinion, uh, get in touch. It's It's... You know, super uh, rewarding for me to see see your messages um, on Instagram or or an email. Uh, I did get some um, some good feedback from the uh, episode that I did last week with uh, Holly, my sister, on mental illness. Um, Brian Varnson, who I think wrote uh, wrote in back in episode two or three, actually wrote in again. So I want to read you what his um, reaction was. So Brian wrote, uh, "Hey Ricky." Episode 7 was really interesting. I thought your guest did a great job breaking down how to diagnose and recognize mental illness. One thing stuck out. Uh, I think she mentioned that someone in her doctoral program denies chemical imbalances in the case of schizophrenia. Right. So Holly, Holly mentioned she had a professor um, that didn't necessarily believe that, that for one reason or the other that, that was the case. So Brian writes, that is so far from, from medical community opinion, antipsychotics are dopamine inhibitors among other actions, but that is the main mechanism of action. Virtually all meds are fundamentally tied to neurotransmitters, LOL. He, he actually he actually wrote LOL there. Um, yeah, I'm with Brian on this one. I mean, I, I chemical imbalances have been scientifically shown to be real and to be the root cause of of anxiety, depression, uh, obviously, you know, psychoses like schizophrenia. I'm not sure you can deny that. Um, I don't know if, if Holly wants to provide some more background. You know, she, she's more than welcome to write in as to why her uh, doctoral program professor, uh, you know, made that made that claim, holds that opinion. But uh, it is unconventional, as Brian um, mentioned there. Uh, so that was, you know, that was the uh, the lone email <laughs> that we received from last week's episode. So, you know, keep writing in nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. Uh, I know that, you know, when I previewed episode eight at the end of last week's um, episode, I did mention that we'd be talking about TV in the initial preview. But rather than, gamb- you know, ramble on about, uh, about uh, Game of Thrones or The Bachelor, I feel like you know, it would be a little more enriching for me and for you guys to, you know, to teach and inform, which is why I replaced it with a nutrition segment that I think you're, you're going to like. I'm also considering uh, extending the podcast a little bit longer just because someone wrote a, a very kind review, uh, Phil G, whoever you are, thank you so much. Um, Phil wrote something on the Apple podcast uh, that 50 minutes never felt so, so short. So I might push it to the one hour format. You know, I'm not going to, you know, uh, fill time for the sake of, of filling time. But sometimes if the episodes are going great and I don't really plan the timing too much ahead of time, but like say we're having 
uh, uh, an in-depth conversation on dating. I don't want to rush it or, or, or leave something out that I think will, um, you know, shorten the conversation. So, so uh, I might, if we're getting somewhere, I might just, you know, leave it at an hour because I know it's kind of been 50 minutes to this point. Um, and on that note, if you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, please, you know, feel free to do so. Would would really appreciate um, the feedback, positive or or negative. Um, so that's that. Now, I do want to start off our conversation this week talking about alcohol. Um, it's it's taken me eight episodes to bring it up, really in any fashion. Um, and alcohol is it's it's a mystery, but I think when we dive into it, it you know, it sheds a lot of light on the human condition. Um, alcohol is the great unifier. You know, everyone does it. You're from your congressman to the guy who pumps your gas to your grandfather, to your boss at work, to your high school English teacher, to your barber, to your busboy, to your florist. I mean, people of all races and, you know, genders and sizes and religions and backgrounds, they all do it. Um, most of you listening, most but not, but not all, probably drink alcohol regularly or have consumed alcohol at one point or another. I, I want you to think back. Think back to when you had your first sip of wine or your first sip of beer. Just, just kind of try to remember, you know, where it was, when it was, how you felt, you know, when you when you brought the glass or the can or the bottle up to your lips and you, know, you took that first sip and you swallowed it. It tasted pretty bad, didn't it? You know, maybe it still does. Maybe, maybe your body developed a little tolerance over time, but, but you know, certain alcohols, I mean, if you guys have had tequila, like a shot of tequila, Fireball, that's always going to take taste completely nasty and foreign and and most of you probably know why i mean alcohol is first and foremost a poison and and we're going to we're going to get into that in a minute but by definition alcohol is a beverage that contains ethanol which is a volatile colorless w- a liquid with that distinct odor that you, you can't really des- describe it it's like it's like almost like a a vile gaseous odor um and ethanol is the main ingredient of alcohol, uh, which is essentially a psychoactive drug that acts as a depressant on the central nervous system. So, you know, I need you guys to understand that by definition, alcohol is a poison. And I'm not saying this as some, you know, super evangelical, you know, right wing <laughs> person who's trying to, to tell you to, you know, live a, a wholesome life. And, and, you know, I'm not I'm not advising you in any direction. I just want to present you with the facts. Alcohol is a poison. You know, it begs the question, would you guys still be putting this in your bodies if instead of Svetka or, um, you know, Captain Morgan or, you know, whatever the brand is, it said, you know, there was a big old poison label on the bottles. Would you still be taking, you know, taking that bottle and pouring two, three, four shots into your orange juice, in, into your, your ginger ale? If you don't believe me that, that it is a poison, right, try... Try drinking alcohol the same way that you would drink a Coca-Cola or, you know, or a bottle of water. I mean, don't don't actually, you know, chug half a bottle of whiskey. But what will happen, guys, is your body will either force you to throw up immediately or you'll be knocked unconscious and die. I mean, there, there's videos on YouTube. You guys have probably seen them, uh, you know, younger listeners of, of guys who will chug, um, you know, an entire bottle of moonshine and then immediately pass out and, you know, I, I don't know how anyone could recover from that, but be that as it may, it has significant, you know, impairment effects on the body and the mind. And I want to reiterate, I'm not saying any of this as a PSA. This isn't the dare afternoon special. I'm not telling you to say no to drugs and I'm not above it either. I drink more than, you know, more than I'd like to admit, you know, and, and, um, that's definitely an area of my life where I think I can improve as being more, uh, more mindful and, um, you know, of how much I drink, especially in social situations, on the weekends, going out. But I do want to understand why we do it because it is an interesting case study on human nature. It's a paradox, this thing that's really bad for us, yet everyone does it and we continue to do it even though we feel like shit the next day or during. Or So physiologically, guys, when you drink alcohol, it's rapidly absorbed into the blood and it moves through the bloodstream to all parts of the body. The liver is the organ responsible for breaking down alcohol at an average rate of one drink per hour. And that varies based on all sorts of factors like your BMI and you know your genetics and size. But a small amount of alcohol will always leave your body through urine, through breath, and through skin. Once injected, guys, alcohol will flow to your brain pretty quickly. 
You know, the effects can usually be felt within five to ten minutes of drinking, and those effects uh, effects will include mood changes, impaired ability to think, uh, impaired ability to move, uh, to uh, coordinate, to make memories. You know, you, you all hear about blacking out or browning out when you drink too much. So, and this is just, by the way, a limited, an abbreviated description of the uh, the impact that alcohol has on your mind and body. So I want you to think like a scientist for a minute. Don't think like a human being, you know, someone who likes to go out, hit the bars, and drink with your buddies. Think like a scientist. Observe yourself like you would a monkey in a cage. You know, think about when you drink, what happens to your body. Kind of step step outside. So physically, when you drink, your ability to walk is impaired. You can't stand up straight. You can't balance. You know, mentally, you have difficulty processing complex thoughts, articulating clearly putting together sentences. I mean, try, try doing Sudoku or <laughs> crossword puzzle or, you know, Jeopardy or, or taking the SAT when you're drunk. It's not going to be pretty. You know, you're going to, you're going to give yourself a hell of a headache. Um, emotionally, you're less in control. You're less self-aware, which when we get to later, you know, the reasons why people drink, that ends up being a factor. But when you put it all together, you are simply a danger to yourself and to those around you when you drink. There's there's no other way to say it. You know, drunk driving is a leading cause of death. And drunk accidents, guys, gee, I mean, there's a show I used to watch um, on FX. It's called A Thousand Ways to Die. Very, very good show. And essentially, there, you know, there's all these, these uh, legends, myths. Some of them are true. Some of them are made up. Um, but... It's all these outlandish ways that, that people have, have died. You know, the Darwin Awards, if, if you're familiar with that. People who do stupid shit when either they're on drugs, they're drunk, or they just make bad decisions. And just to give you an you know, example of, of how dangerous alcohol could be in certain situations, on A Thousand Ways to Die, you know, in one episode, this one woman had so much alcohol, she was too drunk um, to, to drive her car to get more booze, so she actually ended up uh, hopping on her lawnmower you know, to, to drive to the store and pick up uh, some more to drink for her and her friends. So she's driving the lawnmower. She hits this, this huge stone and she flies off the mower right in front of it. And the lawnmower keeps moving. And the woman's actually scraped to death um, by the bottom of the lawnmower. Another woman got so drunk at a holiday party at her office. Uh, she went to the, co- the copy machine to take naked pictures of herself, sit on the machine. You, you guys have all you know, seen it in cartoons or whatever. Um, so she wanted to take naked pictures to send to her boss. So she was sitting on the copy machine. The glass shattered, and the woman was fatally electrocuted by the exposed wires. You know, one guy was uh, – another guy from A Thousand Ways to Die was flying an RC glider plane with his friends while drunk. He flew it towards the sun, so, you know, he was too drunk to actually notice it coming back down. He, he was blinded by, by the sunlight. And the blade, the propeller, whatever it is, impaled him in the chest. Now, again, you know, these are, are fictionalized accounts. Some may be true. Some may be exaggerated. But these decisions that people make when drunk, you know, th- th- I don't think this woman would be sitting on a copy machine taking naked pictures to send to her boss if alcohol, you know, wasn't involved. I mean, I had a friend at work the other day told me that at his college, you know, one of his, his classmates got so drunk that he went to the top of a building. It was a rainy night. He was wearing sneakers. Probably you know, wasn't a lot of good traction with the ground. He slipped and fell off a fucking building. Can you imagine that? 19 years old, works his whole life to go to an elite college, plans an amazing future career for himself. And it all ends because he had 16 cups of vodka soda and slipped and fell off a building. You know, that... <laughs> You get the point. I mean, I I, I don't want to I, I don't want to belabor it, but alcohol is dangerous. I mean, you guys have heard it before, but do you really do you really know? Do you really know it? Right? This, when it comes down to it, we're putting poison in our bodies because it's socially acceptable. It'd be no different than if one day all of us started consuming pesticides or rat poison or ammonia, and our body developed a tolerance to it over generations. Let's kind of do a thought experiment for a moment. Close your eyes and pretend that an alien race descended onto the earth and they lived in the shadows observing humanity kind of understanding our ways what we do how we spend our time so this alien race would see us going to work monday through friday the same monotonous routines work home maybe the gym the supermarket we go to sleep work home sleep work home sleep then on the weekends 
these aliens would watch us go out to bars and people's houses and and consume copious amounts of this liquid, this poison that would dull our senses, make us throw up, you know, and give us extreme hangovers the next day. They would see us acting like like idiots with no sense of self-awareness, no sense of, of you know, what we're doing, um, making regrettable decisions, acting recklessly, and continuing to put this, this poison into our bodies. And the aliens would look at each other and they'd probably be questioning why, what, what, are, what are these people doing? Just like if we went to the zoo and we saw, you know, rhinoceroses, rhinoceroses, rhinos, or, um, I don't know, we saw gi- giraffes, you know, doing something similar. I mean, can you imagine like, like a, a rhino or a giraffe, you know, acting like that? And I'm sure there's, there's memes where you see animals, you know, asterisks, drunk or whatever, but there's no logical explanation for it, guys. So why do we drink? Let, let's kind of try to try, find the, you know, the reason behind this. Why do you put this thing in your body that doesn't taste good, mixing it with something that does taste good, like pineapple juice or Coke, just, just to, to get it down? And I think there's four major reasons, guys. First and foremost, alcohol is a social lubricant, okay? Let's be honest. So many social situations are stressful. Happy hour with new coworkers. Going out with a friend on the weekend to meet a guy or a girl, you know, holidays with your family maybe. The feeling that alcohol provides you with, it, it, it helps you relieve that kind of stress. And I mentioned this earlier, but excuse me, some of alcohol's effects on your brain actually may turn into benefits in social situations. I mentioned that it makes you less self-aware, which is a bad thing because you might end up embarrassing yourself, doing things that you wouldn't do when you're sober. But, you know, being rendered less self-aware could be a good thing. You know, let's say you're you're at a party or a bar, and you know you want to approach a pretty girl. You you know you, you listen to the episode I did last week, uh, two two weeks ago about starting conversations with strangers, and you know you're kind of in your own head and neurotic and second guessing yourself. You know, if you finish a a whiskey ginger, you know you 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 chug the rest of your rum and coke. You don't have the in- intellectual capability to do that. You can't be in your own head. You know, because as I said, alcohol is a depressant on the central nervous system. So, so your your cognitive abilities are impaired. All you can do is act. You're not self-aware. You're able to put yourself in a situation where you can have a conversation with someone new. That, for me, um, for a lot of younger folks, folks that you know are in finishing high school, starting college, kind of struggling with their identity. You know, maybe they have social anxiety. I think alcohol makes sense for them. And I'm not I'm not saying that you know these these people. Uh, are are justified in binge drinking or turning to alcohol at every turn, but it, it certainly um, is is one way to cope. And I think the I think most people would agree that you know alcohol is a social lubricant makes a lot of sense for a reason. The other thing, which which is a little bit more multifaceted, the the second reason why I think we we engage in this behavior, which is paradoxical, is we seek an altered state of mind. As human beings, we get tired of the same experiences, the same routines, the same life. We want something different. And we can have different experiences. You know, you can watch a rom-com instead of a psychological thriller. You can get takeout instead of going out to eat. But that's not enough. You know, we want we want to see the world with a different set of glasses. You know, that's why people turn to recreational drugs in the first place. They're bored with with, you know, seeing the world as you know, a sober, reasoned, um, you know, clear person. They, they, they crave the altered state of mind so badly, um, and you know that leads into the into this you know, into, into my third point um, on depression. But I think what ends up happening is you know people are so bored and so tired of their their ordinary weekday state of mind, they turn to alcohol and they live for the weekend. You know, they end up getting drunk to forget their problems. And ultimately, that turns into alcohol abuse problems. Um, you know, Alcohols Anonymous has has been uh, you know a, a, an amazing uh, resource for you know for folks that have dealt with that. But unfortunately, it's becoming you know more and more uh, pronounced. I I would have to look into statistics on this, but I would venture to guess that in America, and and much of this conversation is limited to America right now. The 
the universalization of alcohol, the degree to which we drink at younger ages is becoming more and more prevalent now than it used to be. And some of that I think has to do with social media's um, impact on how we see the world, on wanting to be liked and validated by others, you know, you on how pop culture portrays partying, you know, the the Kardashians and you know the the Jersey Shore or whoever <laughs> whoever you look to, um, you know those guys drinking as teenagers and engaging in that behavior, I'm sure encourages folks to drink. But let's let's kind of go back. The second reason we seek an altered state of mind, I think that is a major factor in why we're drinking. You know the the monotony, the boredom of seeing the world the way that we see it, um, and along with that, I think we as as a as the human race and especially people who drink regularly, I think we're depressed. And Holly and I talked last week about how hard it is to differentiate between a clinical, you know, diagnosed mental illness and a circumstance, right? Like how to know if you're depressed because your girlfriend broke up with you versus you're depressed because, you know, it's it's because you have seasonal affective disorder. And, and I mentioned that, you know, I think there's reason to believe we're all on a spectrum. We all have traces of a lot of these uh, mental illnesses from time to time. I think we I think we have symptoms of depression, each and every one of us. Alcohol, scientifically, is a depressant, which means it inhibits the function of the central nervous system by impairing it and slowing physical and psychological activity, as I've mentioned. But alcohol is both a cause and an effect of depression. Because if you already have depression, you may turn to alcohol to cope with symptoms of sadness and and loneliness. And it may help in the short term. As I mentioned, you're less in your head. You're less self-aware. But in the long term, alcohol is going to worsen depression. If you drink enough, if you drink a couple days in a row, you're not just going to get a hangover when you wake up the next day. You're going to feel emotionally sad. I don't know if this has happened to some of you guys. It's happened to me, but you know, you, you, you drink for a couple days in a row and you just, you just feel sad because of the impact physiologically that it's having on your amygdala and you know, in your, uh, your prefrontal cortex. Some people have overlapping genetic predispositions that make them more vulnerable to both alcohol issues and depression. And the onset of one condition can trigger the, can trigger the onset of another. Hangovers are accompanied many times by feelings of depression, as I've mentioned, um, but continuing to engage in alcohol abuse will actually worsen that depression um, you know, and, and, and extend it. So it's important to realize alcohol isn't only an effect of depression, but it's a cause as well. I'm going to have some links on here uh, where you can get more information on that and, and resources, of course, if you're... Um, you know, if you're dealing with with alcohol addiction, and most importantly, guys, we drink because everyone else does. It's it's uh, it's simple. You know, monkey see, monkey do. If you don't believe me, try not drinking for a night and going out to a bar. It is really, really hard. And honestly, it does not feel the same to walk into a bar sober and you know see everybody around you doing shots or sipping on a beer. There's actually a scientific basis to this monkey see, monkey do behavior. It's called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are, are really fascinating, and, and we could be talking about it in a million different contexts. But essentially, a mirror neuron is a neuron that fires both when an animal acts and when the animal observes the same action performed by another animal. So the neuron mirrors the behavior of the other as though the observer himself or herself were acting. So let's say you're, you're seeing someone have a glass of wine at a bar, and you're watching them very intently and you're almost like experiencing them with them, the neurons firing in your brain will actually be experiencing that as if it's you drinking the wine yourself. And this behavior, these uh, mirror neurons, actually encourage you to drink because when you're vicariously experiencing something through another person, you know, you're going to want to experience it for yourself as well. But the thing is, guys, we, we ultimately become addicted to drinking. And for, for younger folks, I mean, people who live in big cities, who are single, who, you know, who go out a lot, they cannot be in certain settings unless they're buzzed or tipsy or drunk. You know, they need that feeling, that rush, that, that you know, loss of, of the, the, 
relief of stress, stressless that, that just everything gets wiped. It's, I mean, it's, it's becoming a psychological addiction. And I should also note that, you know, drinking alcohol in moderation is not that bad because a lot of this I'm talking about is, is, you know, is binge drinking. Some people say like a glass of wine a day keeps the doctor away. Long term, there is reason to believe that, um, you know, alcohol moderation could help reduce your risk of heart disease and stroke uh, according to the Mayo Clinic. And I'm going to have some literature on that as well. But the key word is moderation. A lot of this is cultural. I mean, you guys have all heard this in Europe. People drink, you know, learn to drink at a mature age. In America, we just binge. May have to do with the drinking age, with prohibition. That's another conversation. But it's important to reiterate one final time the dangers of binge drinking. Let's say you, um, you know, I, 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 I've known people who, um, who get drunk, you know, two, three nights a week and then again on the weekend. Guys, binge drinking, you may not, you know, think about it now when you're 23, 24, but it does lasting damage. So what can we do here? What can we do if you're either drinking socially and you want to wean down Maybe you're binge drinking and a lot of this sounds eerily familiar and you want to stop. Maybe you're working out and it's just not healthy to drink. I actually wanted to cut back on drinking for that reason because not only is it bad for your brain, but if you're trying to be fit, if you're trying to, to operate at a calorie deficit like I've mentioned in other nutrition segments, it's not the best idea to be drinking eight glasses of wine or you know, six beers, those are empty calories, you know, 1,200 calories that you could be getting from fiber or, <laughs> or protein or wherever. So try a 30-day alcohol-free cleanse. Try it. It's, it's not easy, you know, it, particularly if you're single and, you know, you're going out. And, but I did it. I did it for almost 30 days, and I ended up choosing Red Bull instead of wine, and it worked. So... Just try to you know challenge yourself. Just make sure that you can go 30 days without alcohol because at the end of the day, that altered state of mind that I mentioned, that's not, that's not going to last. The feeling that you get when you're drunk, that's transient. You know, nobody can be drunk forever. Eventually, you got to be sober and you got to find a way to be happy when you see the world through a sober lens. want to turn to uh, an interesting psych question. Uh, that, that's going to kind of be a lens of our discussion in psychology this week. Why are we as people so superficial? When I was a kid, I used to love this show, Fairly Odd Parents. Um, it was uh, it was this little kid, Timmy Turner, <laughs> who uh, was an average kid that no one understands, yada, yada, yada. And he had, <laughs> he had two fairy godparents that um, tried to better his life, you know, through wishes that he made. And I think I mentioned um, in the preview that there was one episode in particular that that I really that ended up being pretty profound, and it's cool when a cartoon and you know can can achieve that level of of um, of seriousness and and really make you think. So in the episode, Timmy is sick of being teased for his buck teeth and his pink hat and his appearance, you know, and he just wishes everyone looked exactly the same. So his fairies, Cosmo and Wanda, they make an entire world where everyone's just a gr a gray blob, <laughs> and Timmy thought this would make everybody equal. But as you might guess, it didn't. At one point, you know, Timmy's still teased by, by his dentist. I think it was his, his dentist, believe it or not. Um, and Timmy tells him, you know, what are you teasing me for? We're all the same. We're, we're just great blobs. And the dentist, I think his name was Dr. Bender, says, actually, no, we are the grayest and the blobbiest. It's a silly analogy, but, but I think it's getting at something really profound you know, I, I want you to imagine for a moment a world where all of us look exactly the same. We don't have physical features or, or clothing to separate us. Women don't have curvier bodies. Men don't have bigger biceps. We're all just floating gray blobs. Gray blob Billy and gray blob Mike. I'll tell you one thing. I, I don't know what the hell people would post on Instagram in this world, but theoretically, I think that you can trace every single problem that we have in society today to how we look. You know, because wanting to look good physically, that's the source of vanity, envy, greed, lust, pr probably most of the seven deadly sins. We have this obsession with our appearance and the appearances of others today. It definitely affects women more than men, but men are affected too. Um, and there's a book out there. It's called Beauty Sick. 
how the cultural obsession with appearance hurts girls and women uh, by, by a woman named uh, Renee Engelm. And what Renee calls this culture, that, uh, you know, this appearance-obsessed culture, she says we're all beauty sick. And she says that for, for women in particular, their emotional energy is so bound up with what they see in the mirror that it becomes harder for them to see other aspects of their lives besides just their appearance. And to support her claim, uh, Renee L Engel says that the average woman owns 40 different cosmetic products and spends about 55 minutes getting ready each day. While more than half of men say, you know, they don't use product to get ready in the morning and, you know, maybe they just roll out of bed, you know, put on a hat or whatever and, and you know, they head to work or school. So women are sacrificing time and resources that Engel says could be otherwise used to pursue goals in education, a career, family, or hobbies. And... As much as, you know, I want to say that it's just superficiality that is the problem here, I think that there's a tangible, we can actually trace this problem to one object, to one thing that we have in our homes that is perpetuating this issue, that's making it worse for men and for women and for children and adults. It's a mirror. You know, if you, if you could think of a world with no mirror, where you couldn't see your reflection, where you couldn't take a photo of yourself and you had no idea what you looked like at any given time, would this be a better world? It almost sounds like an episode of Twilight Zone or, or, or Black Mirror, you know, where, where you were born and I, I guess you would know like, like everything below your, like you, you'd be able to like know what you look at below your shoulders, but you wouldn't know what your face looked like. You wouldn't know like what your hair looked like. Um, you know, maybe you can like feel the textures and, and make inferences, but you had no idea what you look like. Would that be a better world? Because, you know, let's face it, the problem, at the end of the day, is the problem that we're focused with how we look or we're focused with how other people look? I don't know about you guys. You take a photo with your friends and you, and you know, and you guys all look at it. The first place where your eyes go is yourself. You know, I, I, I bet a lot of listeners out there can, can relate to this. You take a photo with your friends and your friends love it. Your friends are like, this is great. And you probably say like, oh, you know, you're only saying that because you look great. Or, you know, I look terrible in this photo. You just look good. Let me ask you a question. How many times did you look at yourself in the mirror today? How many times? When you went to the bathroom, you know, when you got dressed in the morning. How many times did you check the camera on your cell phone to see how you looked? How many times did you look into the, the reflection on the store windows as you walked by if it was a beautiful sunny day or the windows on the subway train or the rearview mirror of your car? How many times? I bet it's at least 10, 15, maybe more than you think. I challenge you tomorrow or maybe the rest of today, keep a tally in your mind every time you go to check yourself in the mirror. Or I mentioned habits, guys. I mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago, the cue, routine, reward cycle. When you get that cue to look in the mirror and the, and the routine of glancing and the reward of you know validating yourself that you look good or fixing your appearance to look better, just take note of that. Be vigilant of it. And then kind of ask yourself, like, is this a healthy habit? Do I want to replace this routine with something more productive, you know, instead of – remember remember what I said in episode – I think it was episode six. I want to say it was episode six. When you get that um, – the, the cue in order to receive the – replace the routine in there. And when you stop looking in the mirror, there will be so many tangible benefits. I can think of three right off the top of my head. If you stop looking in the mirror so much, first of all, the way you can start acting the way you feel instead of acting the way that you look. You know, it's, it's like that expression, dance like nobody's watching, right? Like if you're always dancing the way that other people want you to dance or because there's eyes on you, you're never going to dance the way that feels the most natural. It's the same way with just being, right? Like you look at yourself in the mirror, maybe you're making funny faces or whatever. Maybe, maybe if you're like younger, I'm... You remove that mirror and you start just acting what comes naturally. You act the way that you want to act instead of just acting the way others expect you to. 
Secondly, when you don't have the mirror there, you, you stop stressing about the small stuff like, you know, the pimple on your cheek or the cowlick, you know, in your, in your hair. Um, all these little things that, guys, most people don't notice. What's amazing about our obsession with superficiality, and I always tell this to, to friends or, or siblings if they're concerned, is people care a hell of a lot less than you think. People care less than you do. You know, you get, you, you get a, a little um, blackhead on your face and you immediately say, oh, everyone's going to notice this. Everyone's going to judge me for this. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Like most people probably won't even notice. You know, you, you review your appearance with a fine tooth comb. Most people do not <laughs> look at one another with that much detail on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, those are the first two reasons why you, maybe you should stop looking in the mirror so much. And also, and this is maybe the most important one, the more focused you are on yourself, the less focused you are on the world around you. When you walk around, you know, on a beautiful sunny day, if you're spending time glancing at the storefront, you know, windows, you're not going to see, you know, the the greenery or, you know, the the other people around you or, you know, the architecture, whatever set, you know, whatever you might appreciate in your setting, you're going to be so focused inwardly, you can't be focused outwardly. So that's an important thing, you know, an important benefit of taking time to stop looking at your reflection. So I challenge you, just try to do that for a day. Or if you can't do it for a day, try to do that for a couple hours. You know, go to the... <laughs> uh, <laughs> set foot in a bathroom without looking at yourself in the mirror. And I'm sure you guys have all been in restaurants, restaurant bathrooms where they don't have a mirror. You know, you go to like a hole-in-the-wall Mexican place and there's no mirror in the bathroom and you wonder to yourself, like, how does anyone do this? You know, you've always... I, I know I've experienced that dissonance. But, you know, go, go a day without looking in the mirror once and, you know... It has to be a day where you're out in public. I don't want you guys to, you know, spend all Sunday in bed watching Netflix, you know, making, ordering takeout and not looking in the mirror from sundown, sunrise to sunset and saying like, oh, I listened to Ricky. I didn't look in the mirror. No. A day where you go out in public, try it and see how you feel. But anyway, just to just go back to the, the, you know, initial argument about us being gray blobs, uniform identities. I think that in that case, we would still end up exactly the same in the end. I think we would just find other things that would separate us, whether it be our voice or the way we walk or our interests. I think it's just in our nature to form factions, you know, the in-group, out-group mentality in psychology. And again, this, this brings back the question, why? You know, why are we so obsessed with superficiality, even when there's no reason, no basis to it? Even if we're all just, you know, great blobs like Timmy and Dr. Bender. And in some cultures... You know, we, we can pinpoint the exact reason for this. In India, um, they, you know, the, the, there used to be the, the caste system in Hinduism, I believe, where you'd have priests and teachers on top. This was the, the Brahmin. Warriors and, ruler, uh, war, warriors and rulers beneath them. And then you'd have farmers, traders, and merchants beneath them, laborers below them. And then on the bottom of the, of the uh, social hierarchy would be outcasts and untouchables. You'd be like... The, the street sweepers and the cleaners. America technically doesn't have a caste system like that. You know, and, and really in all free democratic societies, everyone is on the surface equal. But we all know that that is not the case. We know that those with money have more power. Those who have higher socioeconomic status have more power. And those who look good, who hit the genetic lottery, so to speak, have more power. So I think you can almost imagine, you know, an abstract, a simulated caste system in America. But what's ludicrous is you can't control your genes. You know, you can't control the family you're born into any more than, you know, you, you can control anything. So, you know, what, why, why does it matter? And this, you know, we could extrapolate this argument into economics and politics and privilege and identity, you know, it, 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 this can go anywhere because this is a very broad discussion. But ultimately, I think that in America, beauty is a form of currency, more so in America than anywhere else in the world. I think that if you're outwardly beautiful, it's usually an indication of money. And and again, a lot of this applies more for women than men, but it does, you know, it does apply for men. Uh, for for many women, you know, if you're attractive, it usually means that you have money to buy expensive clothing, 
you know, nice makeup, maybe to go to the gym to get yourself into shape. And that's why usually the folks that, you know, we see on TV, the, the celebrities, so to speak, not only do they hit the genetic lottery, but they have the money to cover up their defects. You know, the people who are represented in film and television, you know, they, they appear on the surface to be immaculate, to have no flaws. But, you know, in essence, they just have the capital to cover them up, okay? And not only is beauty currency in America, but beauty is also a tool that you can leverage. I mean, women can use their sex appeal for attention, um, for, for validation in public or on social media. On Instagram, you know, women are, are making careers out of their appearance. For men, to the same degree, you know, fitness models are making careers on Instagram. Men can also use their charm and attractiveness to get ahead in their careers. Women can do the same. But ultimately, I, I, you know, just to kind of wrap this discussion up, I think our obsession with superficiality is dangerous because if we ponder that world with, with gray blobs, you have to think that in some ways, you know, a lot of the issues that I mentioned earlier would be remedied, you know, if we, if we didn't have this, this comparative social climate. Um, and, and, you know, certainly our compulsive checking of our appearance is problematic as well. So, you know, takeaways there are certainly to um, be mindful of, you know, how often you're, you're regulating your appearance by checking your reflection in your phone um, and in the mirror and kind of ponder the implications of, you know, a world where we have uniform appearances and whether or not that would eliminate a lot of the problems that you see in a free democratic society um, where we don't have a caste system, but we may as well. And we're going to revisit that conversation uh, in the coming weeks when we talk about uh, talk more about politics and socioeconomics and how that has really shaped the world that we live in today. For a final segment, uh, rather than talk about TV, I want to get some nutrition in here. And th this, this is... Um, a segment I've wanted to do for a long time. Uh, it's based off of um, a book, one of my favorite nutrition books. It's called Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, um, who is a, a genius um, New York Times, I think he's with the New York Times, writer, um, author. Uh, and in the Omnivore's Dilemma, he, uh, Pollan essentially talks about how the food you eat gets to be on your plate, how you know the steak you know, th that you're cooking is how the cow is fed and, and grown and ultimately butchered, you know, where the meat goes after that and, and how it gets, you know, to the restaurant or the supermarket where you're going to purchase it and go home and cook it. In particular, Pollen talks a lot about corn. And most of the first half of the book actually details how corn took over America. So if you walk into a supermarket, if you guys haven't heard this, this analogy, um, it's, it's, it's salient and this one stuck with me. You really want, if you walk into a supermarket, you really want to stay in the perimeter of the market. The, you know, the, the produce, the meat, the dairy, that's on the perimeter. That's where you want to eat everything in the middle, the processed foods, the pasta, the condiments, um, all of that is the stuff you want to avoid. So the outer aisles, the perimeter, the produce, the meat, the dairy, you want that. Everything in the middle is processed. And why is it processed? It's because corn is hiding in every single section of the supermarket. And I'm about to, to drop a truth bomb on you guys. If, if you're not if you're not aware of some of you guys may be aware of this. Um, I don't know to, you know to, to what extent it's in uh, popular literature, but Pollen blew my mind with this. Corn is in the aisles of soft drinks. It's in the frozen dinners. It's in the donuts. It's in the cookies. It's in the potato chips. If you go into your cabinet right now and you pull out any item and you check the ingredients in the back, I'm willing to to bet that it will contain some kind of corn. If you're home right now, go ahead. You know, you can do it. I'll, I'll give you a moment. It's not going to say corn. Guys, corn comes in many different names and forms. Uh, tell me if any of these words appear on the back of, you know, your pasta or, or your rice or, or whatever it is. Do you see modified starch, unmodified starch, glucose syrup, maltodextrin, ascorbic acid, crystalline fructose, lactic acid, MSG, caramel color, xanthan gum? All of those ingredients are made from corn. And Pollen writes that even if the items you eat don't contain corn, let's say by some miracle you found something in your cabinet, uh, you know, processed food that doesn't have corn, they still come from corn. Because corn is what feeds the cow that becomes your steak. And corn is what feeds the chicken and the pigs and even the fish. Most of you guys know that chicken nuggets aren't particularly good for you. 
Chicken nuggets actually contain 38 different ingredients. Gag. 13 of them are corn products. So let's go a little deeper. And you guys are going to hate me for this. Skip ahead two minutes if you ever want to eat chicken nuggets again. Chicken nuggets, Pollen says, are essentially just corn wrapped in more corn. The chicken was fed corn. The batter is made from corn flour. The starch that holds it together is cornstarch. The oil it was fried in was corn oil. And even the citric acid that keeps the nugget fresh, because it would go bad pretty quickly uh, <laughs> without that, that's made from corn as well. Let's say you wash down your chicken nugget with a soda. Actually, your chicken nuggets. No one's going to eat just one nugget. Let's say you wash down your nuggets with a soda. Well, as I mentioned back in episode four, when I was going into how bad Coca-Cola is, most of Coke or, you know, a primary ingredient of Coke is high fructose corn syrup. And that is the biggest corn offender, which is in pretty much everything. And high fructose corn syrup is probably one of the worst things that you can put in your body. Back in 2006, the average American consumed 58 pounds of high fructose corn syrup a year. And this isn't the only sugar or sweetener they're getting. That's in addition to all of the other sweets that you get, that you're, you know, putting in your body, all the other, you know, sugar you're putting in your coffee or, or you know, the, the sweeteners, sugars in, in your desserts, in your chocolate. High fructose corn syrup is everywhere. And, you know, soft drinks are the worst offenders, but it's, it's in everything else too. I, again, take a look on the back of, you know, anything in any processed food in your cabinets, any, you know, snacks, pastries, chips, what have you. They say... So the, the second kind of uh, piece of advice that I learned from Pollen, in addition to only shop on the outer perimeter of the supermarket, they say never, if you're going to eat a processed food, never eat anything with more than three ingredients. So if you want to get a can of beans, usually it'll say like ingredients, can of beans will just be beans and water. That's fine, right? But if you're going to get, you know, uh, I keep coming back to pasta because it's the worst for you. If you're going to get pasta and it has 600 things in it, that's probably a warning sign. And if you see high fructose corn syrup, put it down. So not to belabor the point on corn, but of the 45,000 items in the average supermarket, a quarter of them, at least a quarter of them, contain corn. And it really is everywhere. But what's really amazing is if you ask anyone on the street, you know, how much America how much <laughs> how much corn the average American eats? People would say not a lot. You know, if you think of, of corn eaters, you think of Mexicans because the Mexicans eat corn tortillas. That's a staple of their diet. And it is true that 40% of, of the Mexican diet comes from corn. But, you know, because corn is is so, uh, you know, universal in all of the foods that I mentioned, Americans actually eat more corn than, than Mexicans. So the question that this poses is how did corn get to be the central part of our diet? You know, and, and why is corn so important? Because there has to be a reason for this. Corn right now is the most planted crop in America. It covers more acres than any other living species, including humans. There is more corn in America than people. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. And, you know, the, the reasons for this, first and foremost, versatility. I mean, corn can be used for a lot of different things. You can eat it fresh which I, I haven't even mentioned, you know, eating corn just off the cob, like as a vegetable. Um, you can eat it fresh. You could store it for later. It's a source of fiber, animal feed. You can, you know, turn it into heating fuel. Corn is maybe the most versatile food. You can also use every single part of the corn on that note. You know, the leaves and the stalk could be livestock for the animals. The shelled cobs, I think at one point, were, were uh, you know, toilet paper or some, some, there was some use for them. I, I, I can't quite remember. Dried corn was used as currency in the 1500s. There's a million different applications for corn. Again, speaking to its versatility. But what I really want to dive into in this segment is the politics of corn. The, I mean, it sounds kind of absurd, but the politics of corn, because this is why. You can trace back every problem to nutritional deficits and, you know, the um, the exorbitant prices of healthy foods in regards to fast food to this one issue, and that's the politics of corn. And this is when I when I previewed the segment, I talked about how the government subsidizing agribusiness is the biggest problem that no one knows about. So I want to make sure I detail this ultra, you know, clearly. So every year, billions of your tax dollars go to farms that plant corn. 
because it's a cheap alternative. We talked about ethanol earlier with alcohol. Believe it or not, instead of gas or oil, people are making ethanol with corn. People are making your alcohol with, you know, with corn because it's a cheap alternative. And since the 70s, the government policy has been to keep corn prices as low as possible. The government will tell farmers it will pay them for all the corn they can grow. And if you understand the lies of uh, the laws of supply and demand in economics, the more corn that's being grown, the cheaper it is. And since there's, as I mentioned, 100,000 uses of uh, for corn, it benefits the government and benefits com- consumers on the surface to have lots of cheap corn available. But here's the unintended consequence. The government is going to subsidize corn, you know, in order to, to, you know, keep the supply high or keep the supply ahead of the demand. But that doesn't help small farmers because low, lower corn prices end up driving them out of business the same way that Amazon's prices drive out, uh, you know, drive small bookstores or, you know, uh, um, store chains out of business. Small far- family farms in Iowa and Missouri, they can't compete with these large industrial corn farms that the government is subsidizing. So because you have 13 billion bushels of corn being produced every year, the supply is far greater than the demand. Essentially, we we need to find uses for this corn because we have so much. It reminds me of um, back in Germany, there was like hyperinflation. Uh, I think it was between World War One and World War Two, or and money, or maybe it was after World War Two. There was so much money. The, the value of currency in Germany was it was so worthless that people had wheelbarrows, wheelbarrows just filled with German dollars. Kids were just burning it and burying it because it just didn't have a lot of value. And that's, that's almost what corn is. We have so much, so much supply of, of corn that's greater than demand. We have corn coming out of our asses, literally and figuratively. And so these huge industrial companies that you probably haven't heard of, you probably haven't heard of Cargill, you probably haven't heard of ADM, they're buying all this corn and they're selling it cheap to food companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's. What are these companies doing? They're profiting like crazy off this. They're buying corn ultra cheap from Cargill and ADM, the government's subsidizing it, and they're turning it into soft drinks and chicken nuggets and burgers that they can then sell cheap and get rich off their asses. So you could argue that the government subsidizing corn is the biggest problem in America because it's the root cause of the pricing system where you're able to purchase these these products made from corn, like the soft drinks and the chicken nuggets that I mentioned come from the high fructose corn syrup and all those corn ingredients, and you can purchase them very cheap. And it's just it it's it's really it's really frustrating and it's perplexing because most people aren't aware of this. Um, and I mentioned you know just to hit you with some numbers that 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 pollen details of the 13 billion bushels of corn that were produced back in 2007 according to the usda economic research service 24 percent were turned into fuel 19 percent were exported four percent were um you know high fructose corn syrup six percent were other processed food and that leaves almost half missing about 47 percent where does that 47 percent go that goes to animal feed and this is the part where a discussion of corn gets a little bit depressing. Um, but I, I do need to share with you guys what, what happens to to the animals, um, you know, on these industrial farms. Uh, and, of course, you can read Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma and see for yourself. But essentially the way it works is cows and chickens were raised to eat grass. That's the way that, you know, evolution, um, you know, has made them. But because corn is so cheap to, to, to buy, and I mentioned the supply greatly outweighs the demand, farmers are feeding animals. They're forcing animals who don't normally eat corn to eat it. You know, cats are being fattened with enormous amounts of corn rather than grass. Which, it's problematic because when a cow eats grass, you know, cows and grass have a symbiotic relationship. The cow chews on the grass, and in exchange, the cow protects the grass by eating young trees and shrubs that might compete with it. The cow also spreads the grass seed, so it's planting it with its hooves and fertilizing it with its manure. But economically, it doesn't make sense to feed these animals grass. They're forcing cows to eat corn, not only because it's cheaper, but because it's quicker too. If a cow's fed grass... It takes far longer to grow in size than if it was raised on corn. Not to mention, you know, the 
not just corn, also the food supplements and drugs. That's another conversation. So the issue facing us as humans, because we're eating, you know, these these animals, is corn-fed beef healthy for us to eat compared to grass-fed beef? And the issue is corn-fed beef, guys, it's bad for you. I mean, beef in general, too much red meat, you know, everybody knows too much red meat is bad, but corn-fed beef contains more saturated fat and is more closely linked to heart disease. It doesn't have those good fats, omega-3 fatty acids that are in grass-fed beef. Feeding cows corn is not just worse for animals. It's worse for us too. And nowadays you see, you know, with with the hypervigilance of Americans, you know, a lot of people eating more organic vegetables, eating um, you know, uh, free range chickens. A lot of people are eating grass fed beef. Some people, you know, know why they're eating. A lot of people just eat grass fed beef just cause like, Oh, you know, this is the thing to do. But some people actually know this, know why grass fed beef is better than corn fed beef. But you can't fault the farmers. I don't want you guys to listen to this segment and say, you know, although, you know, the, the farmers on these industrial farms are at fault because, you know, they're, they're deliberately feeding corn in order to profit off of it. I mean, could you blame them? The farmers do it because economically, it makes sense. The government is making it sensible by subsidizing corn for them to, to feed all this excess corn to their animals. But they're not subsidizing carrots. They're not subsidizing spinach or asparagus or string beans. They subsidize the corn. As I mentioned, it gets bought by the large industrial farms like Cargill and ADM. The smaller farms, the family farms, those go out of business. The industrial farms sell it to the cheap food companies who then profit. It's a vicious cycle. And ultimately, people suffer. And it is an interesting dichotomy that, that, that this whole thing presents here, you guys. Because, you know, one part of the government, I mentioned a few episodes ago, we talked about fiber. I mentioned uh, choosemyplate.org. You know, one part of the government puts out an infographic that says, you have to eat a balanced meal, you know, uh, 25% meat, 25% grain, and 50% fruits and vegetables. That's one part of the government. And the other part of the government is making it cheaper for you to eat sweets. The government is actually making it cheaper for you to eat at McDonald's. Not, by the way, not just, I don't mean to just like <laughs> Wendy's, Taco Bell, Taco Bell, Burger King, makes it cheaper for you to eat fast food than to buy green vegetables. So this is something you guys really need to think about. And um, they say, they say like, vote with your wallet, you know, support companies that um, endorse political policies, social policies you agree with. You could absolutely make decisions, make buying decisions, consuming decisions based on these principles. And a lot of people do not know about this. They, they don't know about, you know, the, the prevalence of corn. They don't know about how government subsidizing agribusiness creates this vicious cycle. So not only do I recommend you, you share this with friends and family, but read Michael Pollan's books. He wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, where he goes into much more detail on, on the topic. And he also wrote another book, uh, The Eater's Manifesto, which I might um, delve into in, in another podcast. So read the Pollan books and you know, learn more about these topics. I'll also keep, I'll have some links on the details section for you guys as well. So there have been some some amazing takeaways from the podcast. Uh, Want to reiterate here? Uh, you know what did we what did we we, we learn? We're going to wrap up. Um, alcohol is first and foremost a toxic poison that people willingly put in their bodies, um, in spite of its uh, physical, you know, emotional and, and mental uh, impacts because they're seeking that, that altered state of mind um, and because it's a cause and effect of depression. Uh, superficiality is really the driver of our society, beauty being a form of currency. Um, and you know, try to limit how much you, you look in the mirror to be more focused on the world around you rather than your personal defects. And finally, uh, check your kitchen cabinet because everything in there contains some, some form of corn. Um, and certainly be mindful of the, the government subsidizing of corn um, leading to the low prices of a lot of the unhealthy foods that the government, a different part of the government, also urges us not to eat. Next week, myself and a very special guest are going to be having a profound discussion that has psychological and philosophical roots. Um, we're going to be detailing some heavy, heavy concepts. If you enjoyed the fifth episode with 
my friend and data scientist, Angelo Piazza. You're going to like this one a lot too. Um, we're going to be talking about free will versus fate. Do we as human beings have free will? Is there any scientific basis to fate? And is astrology just bullshit or is there any truth to it? We'll be talking about time. Is there any objective view on time or is it truly subjective? Would there be time if we didn't measure it? And how can we combat the passage of time as our life flashes before our eyes? And finally, how do you live your best life? And is the nine to five lifestyle really the way to go? This has been an incredible discussion. I know it was a little on the longer side. We're over an hour here, guys, but really enjoyed um, the you know this week's dialogues on uh, on alcohol, psychology, and nutrition. Um, please keep sending those emails uh, to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. Your thoughts, your opinions. Um, if you you know if you agree or disagree with anything that I've said, uh, feel free to share it. And of course, follow us on Instagram at nervoushabits. Uh, excuse me, at nervoushabits. Uh, as well as reviewing, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your continued support, for listening, and stay nervous. Take care.